0: The heart-pounding power and titillating allure of fear on the
1: TV news. You never see news stories about how there's no crime. Saying the crime is bad gets people to react emotionally, and that can be put to use.
0: And the silver screen. Is it
1: human or inhuman? You'll feel
0: the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Why do we seek out the thrill of being scared senseless?
2: One of the leading theories for why we might love to watch horror movies is that ability to transfer threat arousal
0: over to pleasure. Plus the renaissance of black horror.
3: Let me imagine that racism is a zombie, and now we can have a good time.
0: (laughs) Okay? On this week's On the Media, from WNYC.
2: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
4: Listener supported. WNYC
0: Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. It's that time of year again, or that time of every other year again.
1: We're now just 16 days away from what could be the most consequential set of midterm elections in modern history.
0: And as Stephen Colbert says, you know what that means.
5: For the next 13 days, the news media is going to yank our chains like they're trying to start a leaf blower. But which chain? Abortion rights will literally be on everybody's ballot in Michigan. The economy is in the crapper. They got a president who can't complete a sentence.
1: The more immediate issue, however, for Democrats in the midterms, sky-high gas prices. High inflation, high numbers of people pouring across the southern border.
0: But as the elections inch closer, there's one story that's been dominating the coverage on one channel in particular.
1: All right, these numbers you are looking at that show a big jump in crime from robbery to burglary to felony assault, transit crime. Democrats have lost control
6: of our cities across the country. They supported the defund the police movement.
1: An
5: innocent
4: woman savagely beaten by a group of teens on a bus.
0: Philip Bump is a national columnist for The Washington Post. His latest piece asks, what's the non-obvious reason Fox News is talking about crime? So, Philip, first, what's the obvious reason?
1: Well, the obvious reason is that Fox News has, since late September, really amped up the extent to which it's talking about crime on air. That is a time period that overlaps with Democrats faring better in midterm election polling. It is a period that also overlaps with the decline of the saliency of gas prices as an election issue. As gas prices started to fall in June, so did Fox's mentions of gas prices.
0: When it came to two of three subjects, abortion... And gas and fuel they were covered as much or as little as they were on the competition it was crime where you saw a stark difference between fox news as opposed to the
1: other networks what we saw over the course of july and august was that mentions of crime were basically in line on all three cable networks with where they had been for the first six months of the year. there's nothing exceptional about it then in late september Fox really started to amp up, and it's continued to increase over the time periods that I was looking at. It's continued to go up and up and up as the midterm elections have approached. It's also increased on a sort of 20-day lag on CNN and MSNBC as well as Hmm. there has been this increase in crime as a conversation point in the election coverage itself.
0: This is kind of a chicken and egg question. You have Fox bumping it up, talking about it a whole lot more than the actual candidates were, even more than in the ads. That was some weeks ago. It seems as if the candidates and the GOP advertising has come more in line with the Fox emphasis on crime.
1: You're right. It's hard to sort of know if there is a causal relationship, which I suspect there is. I think we can say this pretty clearly. Fox News has really put a huge emphasis on crime, particularly in the last couple of weeks. That is something that we're also seeing reflected in Republican advertising very heavily. And that is something that I think has proven to be disadvantageous to Democrats. So all three mm-hmm. things of those things I think we can say categorically.
0: When you asked in your column, what triggered Fox News to start talking about crime so much in late September, you said the folks at Fox News didn't like the question. They suggested that you were downplaying or excusing crime. And then they pointed to data, data you called anecdotal and cherry-picked. Do you want to summarize that stuff?
1: Sure. So a couple of months ago, I actually looked at crime data because I'm very well aware that crime data nationally operates on a pretty significant lag. The FBI has collected data, uh, which they do at the end of a year and then take some substantial number of months to actually release a process that has been upended this time because they actually changed their methodology. So we have really old data from 2020. And so I did a piece that was sort of like, hey, look, we don't really have good data on what's happening nationally with crime. So then I ended up looking at what Fox News was doing when Joe Biden took office. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a piece that said, you know, crime is surging in Fox News' coverage because we don't know what crime is doing nationally. We do see anecdotal examples from municipalities in some states, but we don't know. We don't know what the national trend is. And yet here's Fox News really amplifying this. Fox News got very incensed about that, insisted that I was trying to downplay crime, which of course I'm not, that I was being dishonest about the extent to which crime has escalated, which I wasn't. We just don't know, right? And they got very mad about that. And so that was sort of the context of going back and looking. And okay, so let's see, how has their own coverage compared to what it was at the beginning of the year? And since it really started to spike at the end of September, there's certainly no new data that suggests that is warranted. So what else is the trigger? The
0: claim was that crime is up more in blue states or in the cities in blue states, but it's also up in red states. So tell me about the actual cherry picking.
1: We do have data from 2020 showing that violent crime had increased in the United States relative to 2019. We also have data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which looks at a different measure, which is the extent to which people are reporting crime. And that didn't find a significant increase in 2020, which is interesting, nor did they find mm-hmm. one in 2021. Now, the FBI did release its 2021 data, which, as I mentioned, was marred by this change in methodology, which makes it hard to compare 2021 and 2020, part because a lot of the big cities in particular didn't actually report data. But when you do an analysis, you can look, for example, at, say, Oklahoma City versus, say, New York City. And I'm doing some cherry picking on my own right now, admittedly. But a city like Oklahoma City, which is, you know, Republican mayor, Republican governor, had a much higher violent crime rate in 2021 than did New York City. So it's easy to pick out places where you can craft a narrative that suits what it is that you're looking for. But what we don't have is this broad top line, here's what's going on with crime in America. So we simply don't have a standardized set of data that actually Mm -hmm. is comparable apples to apples nationally.
0: As you observe, both parties use fear to mobilize voters. They're just different triggers, and crime has been a go-to for the right. But you've written in an earlier column that Americans may not be as convinced that crime is the most important issue facing the country, even among Republican voters. But that was then, before Fox stepped up its coverage. How about now? Do we know?
1: We just did have new polling that came out this week from PRRI, which asks, to what extent are these issues critical for your vote in the midterms? And we see that crime is high on the list for Republicans, but it is behind things like housing and everyday expenses. It is behind immigration as well. And so even among Republicans, crime is not necessarily the issue that's pushing them to the polls. But I think that the factor that's coming into play here is there is such a broad differential between how people view the party's ability to respond to crime mm-hmm. that I think that's one of the reasons their Republicans are highlighting it. And I do think it's worth noting polling consistently shows that people think crime is rising, even as over mm-hmm. the past several decades it has not been rising.
0: And that's not Fox's fault. That's the media in general. No,
1: correct. That's standing.
0: Our minds are drawn more to things we perceive as threats.
1: Well, also, you never see news stories about how there's no crime. Yeah. right. But one of the other things that's interesting is we see this pattern similar to how people feel about their members of Congress. Everyone thinks their own member of Congress is fine, but Congress sucks generally, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing with crime. even recent polling by YouGov shows this. People think in their own neighborhoods, crime's not that big a deal, but nationally that it's very bad.
0: We've talked a lot about Fox News, but you also covered MSNBC and CNN. Is there a democratic narrative or strategy similar to Fox News crime coverage that you see taking hold on the other networks?
1: You know, there certainly are. Instances in which cable news networks elevate stories that other networks don't. But this is certainly exceptional. That Fox News' embrace of crime, well, not unique for Fox to sort of elevate something that may not be as big a story as it pretends. But what it's doing this year with crime, I, I think, is different.
0: So... What should news consumers be watching for as the midterm coverage continues? The last time we had you on talking about the film 2,000 Mules, which purported to prove (laughs) that the election was stolen, and it, it certainly did not, I'm just wondering what you would advise
1: viewers to do. If what is being told to you is a narrative that is dependent on snippets of people doing very bad things... I think it's important to remember that these are definitionally isolated incidents and to think about whether or not there's actually a trend or a pattern here, right? Fox News shows constantly these videos of people committing assault or people robbing stores, all of which, of course, are bad. But I think it's important, as it was with 2000 Mules, where they elevated these video clips of people putting ballots in drop boxes, which they framed as being people committing crimes. People seized on it and believed, okay, look at how often this is happening. Look at that video. And it's like, well, yeah, I looked at the video, man, and it's one person doing one thing. This is a nation of 330 million people. Even if you had 10 clips over the course of a week of 10 people doing something bad, Does that mean that the United States is riddled with crime, or is it that Fox News is picking up these 10 clips of people committing crime? It's important to stop and say, is this representative something broader, or is this simply something that's trying to scare me?
0: So, if you see the same clip over and over again, a single anecdote used to illustrate a much bigger point, often there isn't any point to illustrate.
1: This is really important Especially in the context of Fox News, where in the wake of the protests in the summer of 2020, for weeks afterward, they recycled the same clips of violent actions in New York City and Minneapolis that had sort of spun off of the protests that summer. They used the same footage over and over and over, actually documented it at the time. And this helped build the narrative that for weeks, New York City was under assault and at risk of being burned down and that Portland was, you know, shredded and, you know, this narrative developed of American cities just being completely in tumult for weeks on end because Fox kept recycling the same clips and showing them for weeks on end, Mm -hmm. right? So they did Mm -hmm. that very intentionally, particularly that year with the presidential re-election of Donald Trump looming. That was a concerted choice that they made, and it really built this perception that persists and feeds into the current rhetoric around crime that things were really far worse than they are.
0: What about timing? Should you ask yourself why a particular story that may have been ongoing is suddenly taking over the airwaves?
1: I think that it is worth stepping back and saying, why am I seeing this now? What is it that has changed, if anything? And the entire point of my piece, of course, was that nothing has objectively changed besides for the fact that there's this new focus on it. And it's hard to disentangle that from the fact that it's because we're two weeks away from the election.
0: So how are we doing on crime?
1: We don't know. Do you mean nationally? Do you mean in New York City? Do you mean in... Newton Falls, Ohio, where it's a small town. What are you worried about? What are you concerned about? What's the question you're trying to answer? Fox doesn't try and do any of that sort of analysis or consideration. They're just saying crime is up. A couple months ago, they were looking in New York City, and they're like, oh, look at New York City. Everything's terrible. Violent crime is up. But they didn't mention that violent crime was down in New York City because they were trying to make this narrative, right? (laughs) This is what happens. And so, you know, what's happening with crime, it's hard to say, and it really depends on context. And, you know, even the FBI data, if we're perfect, tends to overemphasize what's happening in big cities where there's more crimes, there's more people, among other reasons. See, so, you know, like there, there are all these considerations that go into it. What we can say is that America used to be much, much more violent in the early 1990s. It has gotten less so. It appears to have increased again during the pandemic. And it's not clear the extent to which that's carried over to now. But the one thing that is clear is that saying the crime is bad gets people to react emotionally and that can be put to use.
0: Philip, thank you very much.
1: My pleasure as always.
0: Philip Bump is a national columnist for the Washington Post. Coming up, the science behind fear and when and why it's fun. This is On The Media.
1: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently,
0: This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Crime as an issue is a hardy campaign perennial and a media staple. Whether or not it accords with reality, of course we tune in. Of course we listen. Humans are hardwired to fear. Back when we weren't the world's reigning predators, terror enabled us to survive. We feared the dark, where beasts lurked. Since our weak night vision couldn't discern what hid in the shadows, we jumped at the snap of a twig, a flutter, a clap. Hey, want to play
1: hide and clap?
0: Even now, in our everlastingly bright world, darkness is still a menace, still bred in the bone. Turn off the light. They don't
6: like bright lights, you know. Turn off the light. You'll
0: see what kind of game. Do you like scary movies? Have you ever wondered why? Science writer Nina Nesseth has. Her book, Nightmare Fuel, the Science of Horror Films, delved into the neuroscience of horror. Welcome to the show, Nina. Hi, thank you for having me. So shortly after the horror film starts rolling, there typically emerges a threat. Often it's nearly imperceptible, a glint in the eye, a flicker of a match, the faintest sigh. Next, a jump scare.
1: Hey, what's in here? Record vault. Oh, will you keep the golden oldies and uh, and maybe uh, maybe the new music? Your
0: body reacts even before you're aware of it. What exactly happens when you experience that physical jolt?
2: You want your body to react even before you're aware of what's going on, right? <laughs> because sometimes that split second can mean saving yourself from that threat. Once you get your thinking brain back in and you recognize that you're not in a real threatening situation, you're able to sort of transfer all of that energy into enjoyment. And that's known as excitation transfer theory.
0: You write that the jump scare is a relatively new innovation, that they became an expected part of the scary movie, you know, around the turn of the 21st century. There are two distinct varieties, the ones you expect and the ones you don't. The one that you expect, we are
2: primed with a cue. I find usually it's repetition. The example I use in my book is from the opening teaser sequence from the film Lights Out, where a person is turning lights on and off. When the lights are on, there's nothing in the space. And as soon as the light turns off, you see a shadowy figure. This happens a few times and this figure that appears in the darkness isn't moving. But as a viewer, you know that something's got to give eventually so that either it's going to not be there when the lights turn off or it's going to be closer. And that's exactly what happens. Because we're waiting for that to happen with each repetition, we slowly like ramp up our own tension to be like, when's it going to happen? And then you Mm -hmm. get that payoff.
0: But the second type is the jump scare that comes out of nowhere. Long stretches of mundane moments, and the longer the audience waits, the more they expect something to happen.
2: The perfect example that comes to mind is what's known as the nurse station sequence from Exorcist Three. Most of it is one long shot down a hallway in a hospital at night. And you spend time seeing, you know, the single nurse at the nurse station going back and forth. You see a security guard who kind of comes and leaves. And then there's a strange sound off camera. The nurse comes up and goes to check on the sound in one of the patient's rooms. And the sound that she heard was ice cracking as it melted in a glass. And that's when we get our first jump scare, which is a patient sitting up and yelling at her. What the hell do you want? We have have that release of tension and we go back to our long shot down the hallway. And that's where we get our second jump that is just so surprising because it's a much quieter one. We see the nurse go into another room. There doesn't seem to be anything amiss. And she closes the door behind her. And then almost immediately and impossibly, this figure... Dressed all in white with these giant pair of shears, walks through the apparently closed door to loff off the nurse's head. We thought we had already gotten our jump scare, so to get that
0: second one right afterwards is just really amazing. Distinguish between terror and horror. You said you can thank Anne Radcliffe, the mother of Gothic literature, for making that distinction.
2: I like to think of terror, by her definition, as the fear of a bad thing that may happen. And horror is the result of that bad thing happening. They're two very, very different experiences.
0: And in my uh, unscientific poll that I did of Friends prior to this interview, people much prefer horror films rather than films that lean on terror. They can find those almost too excruciating.
2: My friends tend to say the same thing, where they really feel uncomfortable with what we describe as psychological horror, and that often leans way more into that tension. And I think a a big part of that is that there are fewer releases. So much of the film and psychological thrillers and psychological horrors tend to be following the point of view character through the anxiety and tension of what might happen. And sometimes Mm -hmm. nothing happens at all. Sometimes you're just carried through a story unrelenting in its tension.
0: Let's move on to monsters. How do filmmakers tap into the characteristics that our brains are hardwired to fear?
2: We've evolved so many unconscious cues for recognizing whether something is a threat. A predator will have sharp, pointy teeth. A predator will have front-facing eyes, claws to rend flesh and tear things apart. Monsters, especially non-human monsters in horror films, tend to move classically like predator animals that we see on Earth. They'll stalk, ambush,
0: make chase. You noted that when you see a human moving on a screen with a creepy, jittery motion. Filmmakers often ask actors to walk backwards and then reverse the tape to create that forward walk that just seems a little bit off. And I remember one of the most terrifying moments I saw in a horror movie was in The Exorcist when Linda Blair bent backwards with her legs and feet on the ground It's a lot like how spiders move. And many of us are uh, wired to be arachnophobes.
2: Absolutely. And there are a few reasons why people might be afraid of spiders, but one of them that comes up time and again in research is that they move in a way that is unexpected. Like you have this jittery movement. You're not sure what direction they're going to move in next. It makes it a lot harder to plan your next move and to keep yourself safe. So when you see a monster moving in that similar unexpected way, It's super threatening because you don't know what's going to happen.
0: Soundscapes are essential to horror, but you mentioned a specific kind that has become a staple for some filmmakers. It's called infrasound, and its frequency lives just below what we can actually detect. Why does a sound that we can't hear make the hair stand up at the back of our heads?
2: Sound waves are vibrations, but we can perceive them as a pressure in the case of higher frequency noises. Infrasound is sort of at the other end. It's a low frequency. And folks who do perceive infrasound tend to report that it makes them feel uneasy, uncomfortable, or nauseated. Maybe they get headaches. In horror films, this is something that's a relatively recent technique. It's sort of like low hum happening under the threshold of the rest of the soundscape that you may not notice but is building your discomfort.
0: Those sounds are subtle. There's that sound in horror films, that staple we can't miss, the blood-curdling scream. But not all screams are created equal because of a quality known as roughness. What it amounts to is a fast change in pitch from like high to low to
2: high to low to high to low. If you think about how an ambulance siren tends to have Mm -hmm. that sort of tritone high to low pitch and how you really notice an ambulance siren when it's going off, screams function in much the same way. They're a warning and that roughness is much faster. Really effective screams tend to have fast vibration between those high and low notes and that's what makes them so attention-grabbing.
0: The study found that rougher screams, those vibrating between 30 and 150 hertz, triggered a greater fear response. So the amygdala
2: is such a crucial part of the brain's fear circuitry, and that's the space in your brain that processes and sends out signals for, for example, threat responses like the fight-or-flight response. It's very sensitive to rough screams. What that basically amounts to is your brain... Is good at recognizing the difference between a toddler who's screaming because they're having a blast on a trampoline versus someone who is screaming because they're being attacked.
0: If the amygdala is sensitive to the roughness of a scream, suggesting that we may be wired to hear them, can we stay with the brain? When we process fear, real or not, what structures are involved?
2: Oh gosh. There's so many parts of the brain involved in processing fear. So the thalamus is a processing way station. It would take cues from other parts of the brain, integrate them, and then, yes, send out signal to get that cascade of hormones. In the case of fight or flight, we have adrenaline, we have cortisol with the goal of activating our muscles and conserving energy to the organs that are required for this emergency situation and diverting Mm -hmm. energy away from those parts that are not strictly necessary if you're dealing with a threat.
0: Let's focus now on the difference between the way the brain reacts to a real horrible event and one created by filmmakers.
2: There are studies that show that when people are watching fictional events, different parts of their brains light up than if they're watching real horrific things that are happening. That amygdala is key to processing threat responses, but all of these other parts that light up when we're watching horror movies such as the insula, which is involved in emotional processing, such as the dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, which is quite a mouthful but is a very much a thinking part of the brain that's all about planning and executive function. So we've all had that moment when we've seen the heroin run up the stairs instead of out the door, and we think in our own heads, oh, wow, that's not what I would do.
0: You noted in your introduction that audiences are eager, they're paying to be horrified. And in fact, they prefer films that shock them in very predictable ways. So explain to me how we can be scared when we know what's going to happen, and then tell me why we want to be.
2: Oh, gosh, that is the question that inspired the writing of this book. Horror is defined by tropes, a shared language where we expect the jump scare, we expect the fake-out, we expect something to be lurking in the shadows, and when that doesn't happen, it defangs the tension. And that doesn't explain why we love to seek out horror. There are a few theories, we already talked about excitation transfer theory and that idea that we can get that fear response and transform it into something that is enjoyment there are other theories about seeing narratives on screen that resonate with your own experience there was a recent study that looked specifically at horror and grief and found that people who had recently experienced a loss often sought out horror movies because a lot of horror narratives are centered around grief and the even just the act of seeing someone work through their own grief narrative and come out at the other end of it can be very healing. And then horror as a film can be very social and much more social than a lot of other movies. Watching a horror movie next to someone, you feel their reactions and they play into your reactions. This isn't to say that you can't watch horror movies alone or with your cat, but there is just something special about the social element that can be embedded in the horror experience.
0: Nina, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Nina Nesseth is a science writer and author of the book Nightmare Fuel, The Science of Horror Films. Coming up, the renaissance of an old, new category Black Horror. This is on the media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. So we're hardwired to feel fear from the comfort of a movie seat. Among the offerings on this year's Halloween marquee is Henry Selick and Jordan Peele's animated Wendell and Wilde. I know what you are, Kat.
4: You're a hell maiden. But it has to be our secret. That's how I can protect
0: you. Protect me from
4: what? Your
0: demons. Selig and Peele's creation stands out, not just for its evocative animation, as seen in such films as Coraline or The Nightmare Before Christmas, but for its lead character, Cat, voiced by Lyric Ross, the young black girl. (laughs) Wendelin Wilde is Peele's latest foray into what has been called black horror. OTM producer Rebecca Clark Callender dug into that genre to find out what it is and who it's for.
1: Bill, if you'll come
0: with me, you'll you'll float too. You'll float too.
4: You'll float too. You'll float too. You'll float
7: too. Yeah... Right about there is where I cover my eyes, and that's just the trailer for the 2017 horror movie It. Horror films in general, not just that particular killer clown, are not my thing. But earlier this year, I learned there's a subgenre black horror. And honestly, that confused me. Moving through the world in a black body can provide more than enough fright, and I'd never really felt the need to see that on screen. I did see Jordan Peele's films Get Out and Us, and more recently Nia DaCosta's Candyman, and liked them. But I saw those as exceptions to the rule, not part of a larger category. So what is Black horror?
4: Blacks in horror has been really with us since the start of film.
7: Robin Means Coleman is a professor of communication studies at Northwestern and author of the book Horror Noir, Blacks and American Horror Films from the 1890s to Present. And she says that even before black horror, there were still black people in horror. Sometimes. Universal Studios put out a collection of films in the 1930s that are considered genre classics today, like Dracula.
1: You are too late.
0: My blood now flows through your veins.
7: Frankenstein.
0: It's alive!
6: It's
4: alive!
6: It's alive!
7: And The Mummy.
0: Is it dead or alive? Human or inhuman?
7: Only The Mummy featured a Black character, a servant played by Noble Johnson, who rarely speaks but under The Mummy's spell holds a knife to fleeing royalty. Don't kill
4: me! Save me from that mummy!
7: Obviously, scary films in the early 20th century catered to white audiences. Black people were not invited to be frightened by monsters. We were the monsters. Early examples, Coleman says, are jungle
4: films. Jungle films were about white people entering into so-called primitive spaces, being very intellectually and also physically superior. These were films that reaffirmed white superiority in the imagination. One of the most popular was a
7: 1930 picture called N'Gagi.
0: A company of women, unclothed, apparently living like animals. One had a child hugged to her breast, a strange looking child, seemingly more apes than humans.
4: So N'Gagi claims that there is mating that takes place between Africans and apes that produces children. And it was marketed as truth, as a documentary, not so much as entertainment, but sort of ethnographic, like, let's take a peek inside, you know, the savage, wild ways of Africans.
7: Savages, servants, or unseen. Those were the most common roles for Black people in mainstream horror. But that first category, savages, proved especially profitable for movie makers. And the idea of primitive monsters soon morphed into more magical ones.
4: There are lots of paths to talk about this history, but one that I often trace is going back to the U.S. occupation of Haiti. And out of that occupation are these awful racist stories particularly in the early 20s.
7: Stories that inspired a writer named William Seabrook to travel to the island for what he called an investigation of its people. When he came back, he wrote a book called The Magic Island that went to print in 1929.
4: He claims that he has kind of lived among Black Haitians, he claims that he's been given access to like this secret devil worshiping cabal and that only he's been lit in as a white person, that he's been able to observe a cannibal assembly and he's even been allowed to sample the cuisine. All of this, he says, is fueled by voodoo rituals. And Seabrook's book becomes really wildly popular in the US.
7: In fact, It provided the inspiration for the 1932 movie White Zombie.
4: My people are afraid of the mountain? Why? It is called the Land of the Living Dead.
7: It was the first time zombies appeared in a motion picture. And while both black and white actors played the undead, they were all under a voodoo spell.
3: This was back when zombies were just sort of robbed of agency and they were shamblers who would do the bidding of their master.
7: Tanana Reeve-Doo is an author, screenwriter and teaches Afrofuturism and black horror at UCLA.
3: This was long before Romero turned Zombies into what we know them into today, which is the dead rising from the dead to eat you.
7: As in George Romero, who directed the Night of the Living Dead movies three decades later in the 1960s.
3: That wasn't a part of it. It was just pure black magic and what if we get under their control instead of them being under our control?
7: It's not that you're just undead, Dew says. It's that you're undead and your fate could be in the hands of a black person. Scary stuff. For another trope, Robin Armeen's Coleman in horror noir points all the way back to D.W. Griffith's 1915 film The Birth of a Nation.
3: There are the faithful black servants who will do anything to help the white families and hold the bad black people in disrespect and hatred just like the white people do. Another thing that came out of that era of fear of black monstrosity was respect and admiration for the good Negroes.
7: Good Negroes came in different varieties, like, for instance, magical.
3: The only reason they're even in the movie, like this would be an all-white movie, except we need a character who knows something about voodoo or magic to explain to us what's going on. Or spiritual. Which is very similar to the magical Negro. Even if they don't know the answer to the magic, they're there to, like, pat you on your back and say, go on, you can do it, you can survive, you can figure it out.
7: And one last trope for the list. The sacrificial Negro. I have to ask this question. Do Black folks always die first? (laughs) Not always.
3: There are glaring exceptions. And in fact, there are some cases where they don't die at all. Like in the, The Thing, Keith David, spoiler, doesn't die. That was very rare that you had a Black character survive, much less to the end.
0: We
7: were the first to go in The Shining, Scream 2, The Unborn, Ghost Ship. One miscall, to name a few. Don't get me wrong, sometimes we die in the middle. Friday the 13th, 7, Nightmare on Elm Street, 4, Terror Train, Scream 3.
3: A lot of the time, the first person to die is the one who sends the real characters into deeper understanding of what trouble they're in. It's like, oh, you better change your course or this is going to happen to you.
7: So while mainstream horror ground out features that stayed the course, Black creators were working to produce counter narratives.
4: Black horror films tend to have stories that focus on Blackness. Robin R means Coleman. Often they come out of the imagination, the vision, of Black creators. In 1940, Black audiences watched The
7: Son of N'Gagi, drastically different from its similarly titled, but completely unrelated predecessor. From writer Spencer Williams Jr., the story features Black people just living life and a revolutionary character. A scientist who was a Black woman, Dr. Helen Jackson, played by Laura Bowman.
4: I've got it. Greatest discovery in medicine since Louis Pasteur. If it does what I think it will, I've done more for humanity than anyone else on Earth. I don't know why I should worry about humanity. Humanity has never done anything for me. Dr.
7: Jackson uses her talents to try and cure a half-man, half-ape creature brought back from Africa. Yeah, I know. But back then, it was progress, a small victory, that would be followed by bigger ones. Like, for instance, Ben.
3: If we have to, we can run in here and board up the
7: doors. That's Dwayne Jones as Ben, lead character of George Romero's 1968 hit, Night of the Living Dead. Romero had said he didn't write Ben as Black, Jones just gave the best audition. But Night of the Living Dead was a huge moment. A Black character was the lead of a horror movie and he was brave. And smart.
4: Well, you're her father. If you're stupid enough to go die in that trap, that's your business. However, I am not stupid enough to follow you. Now get the hell down in the cellar. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. A colorblind script is in some ways not possible, right? We bring our whole and full selves, our identities, all kinds of work environments. And I believe Dwayne Jones certainly did that. And he's showing up as a complex personality. He's not overly written as, you know, sort of super heroic and also in some ways too kind and too accommodating. He's a complex character, and we love that about Ben. Despite
7: his complexity, Ben still ends up dead, shot by cops in the final minutes of the movie who assume he's the villain. The air, though, had changed. Studios realized there was money to be made from Black audiences, and the exploitation era was born.
0: Rising from his tomb to
3: fill the night with horror. Blackula, Dracula's soul brother.
7: Or Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde in 1976.
3: A monster he could not control had taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde.
7: What the truly terrifying puns cover up is a decade in which there are serious attempts to create stories with Black characters at the center, and huge leaps forward for Black storytelling. Coleman points to vampire film Ganja and Hess in 1973, directed by Bill Gunn.
4: I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction.
7: The film won the Critics' Choice Prize at the Cannes Festival, but when it came to American theaters, producers recut and renamed the film because it wasn't like its punny peers.
4: Regardless, Black creators were carving out space for their work. Black people are kind of showing up and kicking butt and taking names and being strong and powerful on the screen. And we're not kicking each other's butt, right? Kicking the butt of white supremacy. Like mobsters, gangsters, exploiters, politicians, the police. All of this is an attack on Blackness and Black people are fighting back in these movies and in black exploitation movies, they tend to win. It's important to note here: these films have problems.
7: Blackula had some incredibly homophobic language, and black women were still often hypersexualized. But black exploitation movies began a decades-long wave of black horror films that could be pure entertainment and/or convey something bigger. And in 1995, a movie came out that is now considered a cult classic. Tales from the Hood.
6: And it's American dream to get some cream, you and a beam in your face in magazines.
5: Well, I liked horror, but I wasn't a fan of just monster movies for the sake of monster movies. But I also liked tales that had some sort of moral component to them.
7: Rusty Cundiff is the director of Tales from the Hood, an anthology told in four parts. One on police brutality, one on domestic abuse, another on racist politicians, and a final story on gang violence. The movie has moments that resonate today, like the opening ad in The Political Tale.
1: The fact is, affirmative action, quotas, reparations, all mean one thing. Another qualified individual won't get a job or an education, simply because he 's not the right color,
7: but how people received the fourth story, the one about gang violence, Kundiff says, has changed dramatically in the two decades since the movie premiered here 's the story in brief: A gang member named Jerome, played by Lamont Bentley, is in prison for shooting a rival gang member he 's offered a chance to participate in a rehabilitation program which it turns out is in a very creepy underground lab running experiments. Jerome is stripped, strapped down, and then forced to watch a montage of images that show depictions of gang violence right next to real images and videos of the Ku Klux Klan and other hate crimes. Jerome is questioned by lead scientist Dr. Cushing, played by Rosalind Cash.
4: You don't like seeing black people get killed? But isn't that what you've been doing all your life,
5: Jerome? The gang story, when it came out, I've had gang members approach me and say, because of that, they stopped gangbanging. Flash forward to today, I've talked to students at different universities, and younger black people today, they don't like it as much because they think I'm blaming black people.
7: To kind of the pushback felt like a part of a bigger dismissal by modern, young Black audiences of their predecessors.
5: It seems like a historical thing where at some point the fight or the struggle changes and the same people who were celebrated, all of a sudden there's no understanding of the fact that what they did is why you can now push for this bigger thing.
7: Tales from the Hood was honestly hard to watch in places because each part felt like it presented one of the tropes I've outlined in this piece. A powerless black cop, voodoo dolls, violence, few pivotal black women. But those tropes also had twists. The cop tries to fix his mistake. The voodoo exacts rightful vengeance. Dr. Cushing is in charge. And I realized the problem was something else. The tales could be fact or fiction, but either way, they are stories I don't necessarily want a white audience to see. I worry about bringing topics that are about Black people to air when they are contentious within the Black community. It feels like you're airing dirty laundry for an audience that might not fully understand the nuances
5: Do you worry about that? Yeah, I mean, back when we did this, I definitely didn't worry about any of that. I didn't know if any white people were going to watch this movie at all, so I didn't really care what they thought. Now, we did do audience test screenings, and there were definite chasms between the black audience and the white audience, particularly older white audience. They hated the episode with the cops. I mean, hated it. The only one that they really kind of liked was the gang episode, because that was pointing a finger at our own problem.
7: The question is always there. Are you subverting stereotypes or strengthening them? And even the most acclaimed works of the genre are not immune. And then with
6: my character, it was well, she's a a strong Black female stereotype.
7: That's Betty Gabriel, who in 2017 played Georgina the maid in Jordan Peele's blockbuster horror Get Out. Georgina is a Black woman whose body has been colonized by a white woman for its youth, while Georgina herself is trapped in the sunken place, conscious of what's happening, but unable to change it. I just kind of went, oh, interesting. Because
6: in my mind... Yes, on the surface, she's a very empowered Black woman, but it's the power of the white woman that is what we're really seeing. This old white woman, who is the matriarch of this house, is now in possession (laughs) of this Black woman's body.
7: In one scene, the audience catches a glimpse of the woman who once was— The protagonist, Chris, played by Daniel Kaluuya, tells Georgina that he gets uncomfortable when there are too many white folks around. And you see her gasp and begin (laughs) to cry before the white woman inside regains control. No. No. No, 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 no.
6: Aren't you something? That's not my experience. Not at all so i think that really embraces the invisibility of black women while also portraying the very visible horror (laughs) of being a black woman in this society and how how we've been taken we've been abducted and and no one sees it but he kind of makes you see it
7: get out addressed racism in a way non-black audiences could understand But that's an active choice by a Black creator, not a service that Black horror is obligated to perform. In the years since Get Out, some genre films have attempted similar explanations of the Black experience. Some are labeled not as Black horror, but Black trauma porn.
3: Horror is entertainment, okay? And I think sometimes people forget that.
7: Tanana reeve do
3: The horror audience doesn't want to be re-triggered and re by horror that skews too close to the bone, like too close to the thing itself. Give me some kind of a funhouse mirror. Let me imagine that racism is a zombie, and now we can have a good time.
7: <laughs> okay? <laughs> Rusty Cundiff told me after the screening of his domestic violence tale, he asked some audience members who worked at a women's shelter if his character's supernatural solution had been too unrealistic, even flip.
5: And they said, no, no, this is cathartic. This is fantastic. And that's what you can do in a horror film. You can give people a release or maybe just a moment of happiness.
7: At its best, Black horror is a chance to see both the beauty and bravery of a culture and people without being reminded of every battle it's fought or still fights.
5: Like I always tell my kids, you don't need to be afraid of ghosts. You don't need to be afraid of cemeteries. You don't need to be afraid of poltergeists. Be afraid of that guy that lives across the street. Be afraid of the people driving by. That's what's most likely to give you a problem.
7: Black Horror knows about the monsters outside the theater. But at least until the credits roll, it can offer a safe place in the dark. For On the Media, I'm Rebecca Clark-Calendar.
0: That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Micah Loewinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark-Calendar, Candice Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Tammy George. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.